It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers. The city steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, the pod's executive producer. And right now you're going to be hearing Alyssa Katz, the city's executive editor who was, back in the day, an editor at The Voice, talking with Trisha Romano, author of the newly published The Freaks Come Out to Write, the definitive history of The Village Voice, the radical paper that changed American culture. Let's jump right in. Trisha Romano, welcome to FAQ NYC. Thank you for having me. I was a fact checker and writer at The Voice in the early 90s, and I can verify that the book's title is absolutely accurate. The Voice truly (laughs) did change American culture, and you did a fantastic job of showing how that influence played out in The Voice's pages. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, that uh, title is a Greg Tate gift. I don't know if you knew that. The Freaks came out to write. That was his suggestion. Yeah, well, tell people just for a moment about who Greg Tate was, and then we can kind of rewind back to the uh, beginning of your project. Oh, well, he uh, he left us a couple of years ago, I believe. And um, he was one of the first Black writers in the early 80s to come to The Voice. And he wrote, at first, mostly for the music section and wrote a lot about hip-hop um, and Black rock. But then he expanded over the years into a broader cultural, intellectual writer and critic. And his style, his influence is very... To me, it's one of the the best people that come out of the voice. It's like Greg Tate to me. It's like no other paper would have run him the way he writes. It's just so unique and so distinct. You couldn't have seen that in a mainstream newspaper in 1981 when he first started writing. Yeah, and I, I think that Greg is the kind of writer, I mean, readers of the city Maybe more familiar with some of the news writers like Wayne Barrett mm-hmm. or Jack Newfield or Julie Lobia. I mean, people who, in a very, very different realm, really broke ground and defined a kind of style of journalism that simply, in, in some ways, had not existed before. Um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, the voice is truly a remarkable institution. I think a lot of listeners know that. A lot of listeners may be familiar with it. Some mm-hmm. listeners may only remember the very later days of The Voice, where it was back page as and, and, and some very scary stuff. Yeah. So I, I want to rewind to the beginning here, both of The Voice and also of your project, of your decision to, to write this book. I mean, because The Voice, as we knew it, existed from basically, what, 1955 to 2017? Yeah, about there. I mean, it's still essentially alive in this very odd way. Um, I call it I call it zombie voice. That's a zombie yeah, voice now. Yeah, and as much as um, Bob Baker is trying to keep it alive, I think it just you need to have a bigger staff. You need to put more money behind it, and and it needs to penetrate the city, and and you know probably needs to be reconfigured to have a different idea of what downtown is, you know, and what the paper should be for, who the paper should be for. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about this book. So you, at some point in this history, you decided that a, a book, and this is an oral history of the Village Voice, we're hearing from the people who made the voice the voice, and not just the writers and editors, folks from classified, from photo, mm-hmm. from design. Uh, what what made you decide to take this on? Um, well, in 
2017, uh, we had a reunion. I think you and I were both there in 2017, and um, it was organized by mostly Michael Tomaski, I believe, who I think saw the deaths of Nat Hentoff and Wayne Barrett and said, you know what, we better get everybody together, you know. And uh, so he set up this date in September, early September, and I was like, you know, excited to go and see my friends and do a trip to New York. And um, the week that we get there, that the owner at that time was a guy named, I think it was Peter Barbie. He decided that the voice wasn't going to be printing anymore. It was just going to go online only, which is, you know, where everybody was heading at that point. And so we kind of became like a funeral, this this party. Like it was sort of like a celebration slash mourning of this thing that is no longer going to be on the streets of New York City and how jarring that was for all of us and sad. And so when I was there watching, you know, Ed Fancher, who was one of the original founders, and I had no idea he was still alive. At that time, he was still alive. He just passed recently. And Jonas Mekas was there. And then they had, like, uh, a video recording of Jules Pfeiffer. And, you know, seeing Susan Brownmiller get up there, I didn't know her. Like, shame to say it, but I didn't know her. And I didn't know, I mean, I knew her name, but I didn't realize that she was so intertwined with the voice and seeing all of these people and you know most of them are in their upper 70s and older 80s 90s even and thinking like we gotta get their voices before they go I mean it's just it's just too important and um so I I went home or I I went back to my uh, apartment where I was staying and I texted my friend Mato so I was like oh my god they got to capture all these people. He's like, I don't know if he said it or I said it, but I was like, what about an oral history? And I was cursing myself to this day because oral history is our beast to do. Well, what you really managed to capture, and I think, you know, one reason this this particular oral history might have been a big lift is because you you really meticulously arranged not only a timeline of history, but then mm-hmm. kind of this kaleidoscope. And it truly is. It's like all of these Thank different you. facets of what the voice is, right? And I, I would take up more than the time we have to list everything that's that's in the book, but everything from um you know, the second wave feminist movement to the uh, AIDS crisis, to hip hop, to um, local investigative political reporting. I mean, and and again, like on top of all these topics that people were actually tackling and dealing with, there's the whole drama of the voice itself. Of the, the voice itself, the, the, yeah. It's finances, it's publishing, all of this stuff. Um, and what really comes through in this whole narrative is like you really capture two things that are very much behind us in the past, right? Um, mm-hmm. in, in, in At the voice and in, in media. And one is that these words on a page really, really mattered. I mean, people literally fought about words on a page, mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. with fistfights. Um, mm-hmm. and on top of that, those, the, the, the stakes were partly set by the geography. People were in downtown with a capital mm-hmm. D, but we've lost touch, I think, with, in the internet era, in the COVID era, with geography as like what matters, mm-hmm. what binds us together. And I, so I wanted to uh, unpack both of those things and however you want to tell it about how you went about conveying or what the voice said to you about t- telling people and showing people like how words really did matter to the people who wrote them, lived them, read them, were influenced by them. 
I think one of the things that is hard for people to understand in this world where you could just post your thoughts anytime you want on any kind of platform and just there's no barrier to that. You can just start a blog, you can start a newsletter, you can say whatever you want about whatever your passionate subject is and it will reach an audience of some kind. Um, It might be very big, it might be just your friends and family, but you can just say whatever you want. And at the time, especially I think the 70s and 60s, 70s, 80s, um, which is to me that those three decades are probably the peak of the voice, you know, print is finite and the number of pages is finite. And if you don't have any other places in the city to push an artist or an idea or a political, you know, passion, this is it. This is the only place. And you have 30 people just like you with their own thing that they think is the most important, cool or interesting thing that they need everyone to know about. So it it's like a they're fighting not because of like you know ego necessarily they're fighting for what they really believe in to be published and spread to the world and you know that's why there were so many i guess fights or you know letters to the editor you know attacking each other you know that's why and it wasn't you know they and it's also different from another paper where you know i i used the new york Times as as the as a example a lot, but you know, the times until really the nineties or two thousands did not let opinion or any kind of nuance other than the facts to be really in the paper. And part of that happening is because of the voices influence, like the style section, you know, and you know, we see analysis now under certain news stories, right? That's like a, a voice influence. Um, and so when you go back to those that time in the 70s before that, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the times is real straight and narrow. And you do not have reporters who are covering a subject because it means so much to them. They're not engaged with it the way we were. And we were encouraged to be. Like we were not supposed to be objective or outside of the subject. It's a farce. It's ridiculous. You know, it's like, it's, there's no such thing as objective. There's fair and there's balanced if you want to be. But like, objectivity is a lie. And when you have a human being with a certain set of friends and contacts and editors and life background coming to a story, like two different reporters with two different backgrounds to cover the same event are going to see it differently. No matter what you do, right? Um, and another, and I think another thing that was distinct about the voice is that in different ways, a lot of folks who worked there were actually involved either in the scenes that they covered or in other scenes, and that that kind of cross pollinated in their in their work, right? In mm-hmm. that, yeah, it, it's it's um. Well, yeah, the other thing that really was influential to me in my own development personally and was really unique to the voice was that. Sometimes people didn't limit themselves to covering only the arts or only politics. Mm-hmm. There were people like Elisa Solomon who did both. And I also think one really critical turning point, this may have happened during the AIDS crisis, it may have happened sooner, 
um, but was you, you had people who were who were arts writers who really felt the urgency of stepping up when political moments hit mm -hmm. where they felt they had to they had to weigh in or had to had a report. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um you know, I think one thing that people don't realize about when you're talking about the glory days of the voice in the um you talked about 60s, 70s, 80s, for a big chunk mm -hmm. of that time, um, certainly in the 80s, Rupert Murdoch was the publisher. <laughs> he owned the voice, right? And he owned the village voice, which it wasn't, you know, he was often, I think, a target of uh, Alex Coburn as the press columnist and so on. But... And, and Joe, Joe Connerson, too, <laughs> would, right. would, would go at him. <laughs> but but I mean, in your account, Murdoch is actually a pretty good owner for the voice. I mean, it was making money. Mm -hmm. He gave the newsroom resources it hadn't had before. So talk mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how that played out. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, they all said anybody that dealt with him directly that he was a perfect gentleman, that he was a good businessman, that he really was a real newsman, he really understood it. And, um, you know, he didn't interfere with the editorial directly, but he would try and put pressure on the editor-in-chief, David Schneiderman. And, you know, when David was telling me these stories, I was like, wow, you've got balls, man. He was just basically telling Murdoch to F off. Like, like Murdoch would be like, I want you to fire Joe Connison. And Dave would be would be like, no, I can't fire somebody because you want me to fire. I'll have no credibility left. And I think that he knew that, but he could never um, really stop stuff from happening. He never really was able to censor it. There was that what Lord Daca thing where they actually put an asterisk in the word fuck. And so that is probably the most he was ever able to like influence editorial. But they just took shots at him every week even you know and i think the main thing is that he understood that if you don't let the voice be the voice then it's no longer the voice and your property is going to go down and no one wants to read a, a voice that has been you know neutered or you know just cut off at the knees no one wants to see that it's called the voice you know it's like what harry allen said it's big and it's loud you know, and that's how it's supposed to be. Right. And of course, that's a lesson that was lost on later owners of the paper, which we will, which we will get to. Uh, so, you know, you, you undertook these interviews, you, you you began them after this reunion. But there's, you know, there's an incredibly detailed narrative that kind of really spans decades. And, you know, we're a lot of people who are no longer alive. And I wanted to just get a feel for how you were able to kind of find your way in, the, in in this wilderness. I didn't kind of go from the text as much as I went from the interviews, right? Like, I would ask everyone, you know, what was your big story? Or what are the big stories that happened when you were there? And they would sort of guide me. And once more than, you know, a handful of people start talking about an incident or a story or coverage, it started to become clear that, you know, what things needed to be tent poles. And there were also things that I knew that I had to hit. Like, I knew, like, if you go to a Bruce Springsteen concert, right, like, there's certain songs he's got to play or people are going to get mad, right? But then there are also songs that, like, the diehards know 
that the mainstream people don't know that you've got to hit. If you don't do that, they're going to get mad. And so, you know, there's versions of that with the voice. Like, you have to write about Nehantala. Um, You have to write about, um, you know, Way Barrett. But then there's like Jill Johnston, which a lot of people now don't know who she is. And she was a big deal then. And she was, you know, a famous in New York kind of uh, figure and, you know, was on panels and on, it, it just, she was a bigger, much bigger deal than we realized. And so she was lost to history. I should know, just so for listeners, like she, I mean, tell us a little bit about Jill Johnston. She's, I didn't know much about her either, other than a byline, but she's a really fascinating figure. Well, well, she started out as a, a dance columnist, and I think she had some mental health issues over the years. Like she had, she wrote about her breakdowns, um, but over the years, her columns started becoming more like a diary and or like you would say a blog um than like a pure dance analysis review column and at one point she realized she was a lesbian and she basically started writing about being out at being a lesbian and you know and then lesbian feminism and that is wild to think about in 1969, 1970, 1971. She was amazing. And, you know, her style became very um, almost performance art like where it was more like, I, I would say, like a poetry slam or something. If you if you read it in print, it, it doesn't, she didn't use punctuation for a while. It didn't use um, capital letters. <laughs> it, if you read it in print, it was Sometimes really hard to follow, but I watched some video of her in town. What is it? Town Bloody Hall. It's a documentary she's in, and she she reads this piece, and it makes so much more sense when she's reading it aloud in her own intonation. But it's brilliant, and you know, no one else would have published that. No one. Well, one thing that you're you're book really gets at is just how the voice became um, this haven for so many queer writers and that this kind of wasn't a given, right? I mean, I I think the voice's coverage of Stonewall was both history-making in the sense that Fred McDara took Mm -hmm. these photos. It's like the only photo Mm -hmm. record we have, as as they note. At the same time, the the article was not so so great, right? That Mm -hmm. Yeah, both the, both the articles and Lucian, who's still around. He Lucian just got the fourth. <laughs> he um, he will tell you like, oh, we didn't we didn't take it that seriously, and we thought we were being you know witty with how we were like using language, using the um the word I don't know. Can I say the words on on this podcast? You know, using the word faggot, like you know, um, in a, a like a quasi playful way, but like. You know, the voice was just behind on some of that stuff, but because it was more open and more, they actually had out staff members, I think that it was the place where the gay community felt like they could address those issues directly with the staff or with the editors and advertising. So it very quickly got up to speed. 
Now, that doesn't mean it was like all rainbows inside the offices. Like, I think Guy Trebay, another writer who showed up in the mid-70s, late 70s, he said, you know, it was pretty homophobic place. And it was a very, like, specific way. Like, if you were the gay guy and you wrote about music, you wrote about disco. Like, it was, like, very, like, stereotyped. So it wasn't, you know, la-la land, but it was still... And, and, and that's just to say that the bar in media is at that time was so, so low that just having a presence on a staff and a voice in the paper for gay voices and lesbian voices made it so much better and, you know, more progressive than, you know, any like the New York Times or Wall Street Journal. Right. So it just became a beacon for any outsider, you yeah. know, um, any kind of outsider. Well, I just want to um, name check two people who I think were pretty, seem pretty pivotal in, 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 in your account and in my recollection in really moving through that, that, that kind of period you're talking about when Guy first got there. And I think Michael Musto being this nightlife mm-hmm. columnist mm-hmm. who was very out and covering like queer mm-hmm. nightlife, I think was crucial. Mm-hmm. And also Richard Goldstein, who's an editor mm-hmm. who was there for a very long time. And I didn't realize that he had been closeted for that long. I knew him as, as out <laughs> Richard Goldstein, who was leading our AIDS coverage, and among many other right. things. Um, and one thing about Goldstein, it's a r- kind of running gag in your book. There's this line where people say, oh, Goldstein's memory is absolutely the worst. <laughs> So, it's it's really bad. He'll he'll tell you it's terrible. <laughs> right. But it's like it's fun because you have this kind of effect going on where people are in kind of dialogue with one another through mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. Uh, comments and sometimes there's slightly different recollections of mm-hmm. events. Yeah. And that's, yeah. all, <laughs> that's all fine. Um I I did I did want to talk about you started saying earlier about how a lot of what the made the voice the voice kind of pretty quickly seeped into other media and particularly the New York Times which not only mm-hmm. started mimicking the styles, but they started hiring people, including mm-hmm. Guy Trebay, Ann Powers, a bunch of other folks, Manola Dargis, who was a film critic. Um, who was that? Oh, Manola. Manola, yeah. right? And yeah, so, yeah. And, and I think that this is, you know, I, I, I'm very sad to have to get to the beginning of the end, which I think starts earlier in the history than a lot of people realize, right? Like that there is sort of this, um, the narrative. The 90s. The right, 90s, like well, the people, 90s yeah. right, well, people are people are saying, well, you know, Craigslist comes along and it eviscerates the classifieds. And that's absolutely true. And that's uh, in it from a business point of view is devastating. But in your account, I think that is sort of the first moment in which that sort of sense of like what you said earlier, where else can you go? The voice is the place where they're, mm-hmm. they're the place where, you know, they're, 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 uh, writers are going to CBGBs to see who's mm-hmm. there. And they're writing about the talking mm-hmm. heads or writing about hip hop. Um, when when that came came of age, and I just think it's like, then suddenly other media started um, mimicking, developing what the Voice had done, and suddenly mm-hmm. the purpose of the Voice became a little less clear. So yeah. what, what was like, and I feel like that's the era when we were there in the '90s, and so mm-hmm. I'm curious how you kind of navigated that and kind of tried to carry on the voiceness in your own work. So I got there as an intern in '97. And and then I went back two years later as an actual staff person because I was just there for three months in 97. I mean, I was an ignoramus. Like, I did not know really the 
deep history of the voice or even, you know, who a lot of these unbelievable people were around me, especially in that I was such a club kid and so obsessed with like nightlife and all of that stuff. Like Michael Musto was probably the only person that I was like obsessed with and, and I knew and understood. And um, I think like for me, it still felt cool because it was like the village voice. It was, it still retained its, allure to me and I did not know like necessarily that the you know we I was there when Guy Trebay left and I remember like everybody was like ooh Guy Trebay's leaving you know I so I only knew him for like a couple months really when I think about it it's funny but I don't know I didn't really realize what was happening yet because I was so in my own universe and my universe was still pretty underground it was techno and house music and way, 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 way before it was called EDM and electronic dance music. And so for me, like that was a platform, a really big platform to share about local New York DJs and musicians and, you know, all the, the whole burlesque scene and, uh, you know, all of that stuff or like the misshapes that were coming up and the strokes. I was there doing all that stuff. So I was just in my own little bubble and you know not really realizing necessarily how dissipated it had gotten you know because even my coming of age in terms of like getting into alternative or underground culture or whatever I was like you know in high school in 1990 like Nirvana came out in 1991 or whatever it was and that's when all of those um that's when essentially everything that the voice was writing out went mainstream, really. Like Lollapalooza was happening, MTV, um, what is that, um, 120 Minutes, and like uh, like Grunge, all that stuff, Jane's Addiction, all that stuff started exploding in the early 90s. But for me, being in Las Vegas, which is where I grew up, like, like that was exciting to see these variety of like the, all, the LA Weekly and like, you know, any of these like, alt underground like music things like so it wasn't I was too young to really understand what was being lost by me being able to see all this stuff in Las Vegas without an internet by like 2004 2005 is when you know for all of us like Gawker was around and you know that's when we really started to understand that my generation really started to understand, oh, yeah, we're not it anymore. <laughs> we're, like, chasing them to talk about us. Right. You know? And that's, of course, you know, the the elephant in the room there is the internet, right? Gawker mm-hmm. existed online. The voice, like mm-hmm. every print publication, fumbled its way online. And you you talk to these very frustrated people like Anil Dash who are trying to really <laughs> make it. And they just, the institution wouldn't, you know, couldn't, couldn't really do it. And I don't think that's anyone in particular's fault. I just think it's, like, right. the legacy of curse um but you talk in the book about it being the internet before the internet right mm-hmm, and i think that mm-hmm. that's sort of um yeah it, it's really despite that it just was a very very difficult pivot um and then on top of that as if that weren't all bad enough and as if they hadn't lost you know ad revenue to craigslist and then you have the new times folks who show up um yeah. and and buy the place so I, we don't have to dwell on the the it was they were hard chapters it was they were hard sections to read for me because I kind of really? tuned it out I didn't want to know at the time what was happening I knew and I didn't want to know and now I just 
force myself to read it. And it's grim. And, and what you have, the stories from the inside about the level of disrespect for what made this paper actually thrive with people saying to the face of the 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 guys in charge, like, mm -hmm. this is, you will kill what makes us valuable. Why are you doing this? And they just, it sounds like they just mocked the staff. Yeah, they did. I mean, he literally, I, I, Mike Lacey, who is the New Times guy, uh, sat at the staff meeting and he, as I think Tom Robbins described, put his cowboy boots up on the, on the table and, you know, just started like, talking down at us and like i think he called nahentop a stenographer and uh um, wow <laughs> that's <laughs> i was incredible and then i think sid shanberg was at that meeting and i my recollection is that he walked out i said sid mm -hmm. shanberg is like a pulitzer prize winning like epic <laughs> investigative reporter he walked the fuck out and um you know, and then I remember he, he was telling us, like, Lexi was like, this place is dysfunctional. And I was like, I don't get paid on time anymore. I don't know what you're talking about. You've made it. Just, this is like I was a freelancer and I used to, I mean, I was technically a bargain unit freelancer. And so our paychecks were regular, you know, under the Stern and under the bankers and all, under all the other uh, owners. Once New Times took over, it got like so wonky that like I had no idea if I was going to be able to pay my rent because oh, I didn't know when the checks were going to come. But yeah, it was really bad. I mean, it was like bizarre. It was sort of like buying Coca-Cola and then changing the formula and thinking that people would still buy Coca-Cola because it had that red can with the logo right. on it. Like, it's like if you change the, the, you know, it's like, what was it? New Coke? Nobody right. wanted new Coke. You know, <laughs> they tried to make us new Coke and nobody wanted that. And, you know, because it all kind of came together at the time of the Internet dying, the financial crisis, and, or, and not the Internet dying, the media dying, the financial crisis and the Internet like rising, because it was all coming together at that time. Their ownership just kind of coincided with like everything falling apart. It's it's not, you know, from the outside, it's just like, oh, the internet happened and oh, financial crisis happened. No, they also were terrible. <laughs> you know, like a better, better, if we had stuck with Leonard Stern or any of the other, like, like I think we'd still be around. I mean, look at the New York Post. River Murdoch still, <laughs> still exists, you know? So, yeah. You know, I think the ownership didn't help at that point. And then they went through like eight different editors in like a year or something. It was just the craziest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> well, they also, among other people that they fired was was Wayne Barrett, right? This, you want know, to talk about phenomenal investigative reporters. Incredible. I mean, that was a watershed, right? And so just let's, the couple minutes we have left, let's just talk briefly about what happened with Wayne and also just, you know, first of all, some of the accounts you have of Wayne's uh, reporting in the book are just phenomenal. There's a story in there. <laughs> I won't I won't do any spoilers on, on, on this podcast, but the story about how he tracked down a mob associate of Congresswoman Geraldine Ferraro is priceless. That it, that the the Bill Baston story is like... Yeah. I laughed out loud. Like, Amazing. <laughs> I mean, his legend, he's a legend. He was legendary when I was there. I mean, I. it's so funny because a lot of people, like he was this larger than life character. Um, I remember him being very tall 
with this like you know just army of interns in one small office and um just putting out these like to some degree like impenetrable very 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 detailed reports and you know it was like he built a case it was like for all the lawyers and attorneys general or whatever here's your story here's your case to take this person down you know and i mean that's like what he did and you know he was a very intense person but he was always very nice to me so i never got the um and I don't know why. Like I was like, he must think I'm an idiot. I'm like a, a nightlife columnist. Like, like, but he was always like complimentary and very nice to me. And so I never got the, the intense Wayne Barrett. Uh, I never got that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Wayne was. Um, I, I just have to cite a line from him that you use in the book, and that a lot of the eulogies for him cited that he had said to a bunch of school kids when he was visiting them, which means he said, "We we journalists, we're detectives for the people." <laughs> just a, I mean, he's an amazing, amazing person. I missed him. I really am sad that he did not make it through the Trump era. Yeah. I mean, he would have just eviscerated him yeah it would have been a beautiful thing to watch and um i'm glad that he got his flowers the last year that he was alive though because people all started blocking to him and you know because he had all that material on trump that he'd been you know collecting for decades at that point everybody was so behind the eight ball on it I remember him giving interviews in 2017 and 2016 about like, or I guess it was 2016 about how cable news and TV news just really, they really crapped the bed. They really just did not do due diligence on Trump and he was furious. You know, I mean, it, it was all there. All the reporting yeah. had been done for them. It was all there. They just did, you know, too fun to have a clown show on TV instead. Yep. Well, another thing that that Wayne did was, um, you know, he he had this. You're mentioning this flock of of interns, right? He had people mm -hmm. around him. He he uh, really, I think it was a probably a pragmatic thing for him. He just had, you know, he had the reporters who would go out and find this document at the courthouse or go knock on this door. And I think a lot of them, you know, talked about being absolutely terrified or confused and, but they knew he'd yell at them and they didn't come back with it. So, so they did it, but it, you know, it speaks to a legacy, like some of Wayne's interns, like Jennifer Gonerman mm -hmm. at the New Yorker is a Wayne intern, Tracy McMillan, uh, Marcus Baram. I mean, it goes on and on, like people who are working as investigative reporters now. Um, so, I am turning it back to you, Trisha Romano, to no, say, no. <laughs> but Wayne, you know, Wayne left that legacy. And I'm kind of curious with this book, you know, I, I'm reading it as a voice alum. I'm a middle-aged person. I'm aging myself by, you know, I worked there in the early 90s, as I said. Um, but I'm wondering if you think there's anything in here for people of the future, right? Not the folks who maybe are, I don't think it's a nostalgia trip book. I think this book actually has something to say to the present moment about culture, about New York, about media. But I'm wondering what you what you want to leave for the children who might be reading. This. You don't know what you missed. I feel sorry for you. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Like what, I guess the thing that maybe somebody who's 20 and doesn't even understand the concept of an alternative newspaper or like a an underground publication or why it would even necessary. Just the idea that one magazine or one publication could just kind of be your guide to life is so unbelievable to think about. You know, like one thing, if you were a certain kind of person, was just gave you everything. It gave you the world. Trisha Romano, The Freaks, came out to write the definitive history of the Village Voice, the radical paper that changed American culture, is such a fabulous book. Thank you so much. Really, it's such an accomplishment. Thank you for writing this. Thank you. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is headquartered at the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting journalism that serves the people of New York. You can find it all freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc. And you can chip in to support that work if you'd like at thecity.nyc slash give. And the podcast receives support from PNT Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side with a podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. And from Bouldering Project Brooklyn which has world-class bouldering terrain, a heated yoga studio, a fully equipped fitness center, a co-working space, and a dedicated youth climbing room that hosts after-school programming and birthday parties. Go to brooklynboulderingproject.com to find out more. FAQ NYC is an affiliate of the Colin Powell School at CUNY City College, where our host, the great Dr. Christina Greer, is one of the Moynihan Public Scholars inaugural fellows. And we're an affiliate of the Flaming Hydra Newsletter, a collective of 60 writers and artists, including me, Harry Siegel, delivering a cooperatively owned new newsletter to your inbox that you'll actually want to open and read. See more and subscribe at flaminghydra.com. Our engineer is the inimitable Adam Kamara, and the city's own Alyssa Kantz guest hosted this episode. A special thank you to our guest, Trisha Romano, the author of The Freaks Come Out the Right. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.